The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, uh, welcome back. And um, so we saw this morning that in the last year of the Buddha's life, last months of his life, there seems to have been an, a time of great strife, challenge of this war between kings and countries in the air about to happen, maybe happening. Kings usurp the thrones from their fathers. Perhaps plagues. Remember he came into this village where 12 of his followers are dead and his own illness and pain he struggles with. And, um, and this is an old man. I, I didn't read that section where he describes himself as an old man. Maybe it's worth um, reading. So in 2.25, he says of himself, Ananda, I am now old, worn out, venerable, one who has traversed life's paths. I've reached the term of life which is 80, just as an old cart is made to go by being held together by straps, so the Thagata's body is kept going by being strapped up. It's only when the Thagata withdraws his attention from outward signs and by the cessation of certain feelings enters into the signless concentration of mind that this body knows comfort. So here's a person who describes himself as being old. And um, there's one other passage somewhere in the Pali Suttas where he describes himself as an old man as being stooped over and all wrinkled. You know, you think that, you know, the glorious founder of your religion, you know, you want to you know, bring him over to your parents' house for dinner to, sh- you know, to show, you know, what a great religion you're part of, you know, you don't want someone who comes over stooped, wrinkled, teeth missing perhaps, and with bloody diarrhea on top of it. (laughs) And um, so, and then uh, it seems like he's uncomfortable all the time in his old age. They didn't have pain medication back then. And the only way that he would feel comfortable is by going into very deep meditation where he kind of shuts down a lot of the sensory apparatus is not really connected to parts of his senses. And, um, but otherwise, if he comes back out and active and conscious, he's probably in pain, he's uncomfortable. And again, he's doing this long walk. You know, he could just, things being so painful and difficult, maybe he just stay put in one place and meditate a lot and try to stay comfortable. But no, he's walking. You know, meditate when you walk so much. So here's a man, old man in pain, difficult times. And with that as a kind of a backdrop, which I think is in some ways a profound backdrop because it, it kind of represents or holds the human condition that for many people and, and the, the background of everyone's lives is the either suffering or the potential of it, of difficulty, strife, war. You know, it's been very fortunate, I think, I, I'm very conscious of having spent most of my life in the United States where there hasn't been any real war, you know, 
here. But um, there's so much, the rest of the world, there's so much war. And, and um, you know, I grew up also in Europe and was very conscious of the war there growing up, just close by. So anyway, all this stuff, so in, into that, all that picture comes the Dharma, comes the Buddha. And it offers an alternative, another way of being. It offers a way of finding peace or freedom in the midst of that. So we don't have to be stuck or oppressed, but there's a, there's a radical difference. And the image of the calm monk walking in the midst of it, being calm, peaceful, and then dying in peace is a dramatic contrast to the turmoil of life. And what, uh, you know, and the possibility of that for each individual is contingent upon practicing, practicing the Dharma. And that requires knowing what the Dharma is and knowing what the practice is and doing it. And so, how important is this? So, one, one way of reading this text, as I said this morning, is that it's uh, important level is it's really a text devoted, to, devoted toward devotionalism. It's trying to build up the status of the Buddha so that he's seen as really worthy and important and he's the best spiritual kind of force on the, on the continent. And, um, and so, you know, people can honor him, devote, be devoted to him and do the worshiping. Another way of reading it is that, yes, all that goes on in order to elevate the status of the Buddha, talk about all the spiritual stuff, this supernatural world, but it's to make a contrast between something else. So here's a, here it is. So I read part of this before. So the, the Buddha comes to Kusanara and lays down between the two salt trees where he's going to die. And, um, and when he lays down there, then... Um, um, all these flowers fall on him. And then he, Buddha says this, Ananda, these salt trees have burst forth in abundance with, into an abundance of untimely blossoms. Divine music and song sound from the sky in homage to the Thagata. Never before has the Thagata been so honored, revered, esteemed, worshipped and adored. Never before has the Thagata been so honored, revered, esteemed, worshipped and adored. So but this, the devas are worshipping them with flowers. And he's saying, this is like the best. This is the highest kind of they've ever received. That's a significant statement. So he's preparing you. He's getting you ready. He's like, this is a literary technique. He's getting you ready for, what, for this powerful thing he's going to say after this. And yet, Ananda, whatever monk, nun, male or female laid follower dwells practicing the Dhamma properly, and perfectly fulfills the Dhamma way, he or she honors the Tathagata, reveres and esteems him, and pays him the supreme homage. Therefore, Ananda, uh, let this be your watchword. We will dwell practicing the Dhamma properly and perfectly fulfill the Dhamma way. So you see the contrast? From all the celestial stuff and the celestial way of honoring and worshiping the Buddha, and the Buddha says, no, the most supreme way of worshiping me is you practice. That's what the real worship is. And that you find Buddhist teachers down through the ages uh, have often pointed that out. Like sometimes you know, people will go to a Buddhist teacher and say, uh, how can I um, uh, thank you for all of the help you've done? And the very common answer is this kind of answer. Oh, the best way to thank me is to practice. Just continue your practice, deepen your practice. This is the way you honor and worship the great teacher, the Buddha. 
And, um, and you find other places in the suttas where this kind of contrast exists, where there's one in the Majjhima where uh, the monks are sitting around and they're describing these amazing miracle stories about the Buddha. I mean, he's really built up this, you know, all these m- m- far-out miracle stories, how wonderful, profound, deep, miraculous things he can do and have done and c- miracles connected to his life. And it's just like one wow after another. Wow, he can do that? Wow, he can do that? Wow. And then finally, someone says, maybe it's the Buddha says, yes. And the most miraculous thing of it all is that when I have a thought, I can see a thought arise and I can see it pass. When I have a feeling, I see the feeling arise and I can feel it see it pass. So it's a literary technique where it's building up for, to make a point, but to make it in the context, this is, you should pay attention to this. This is really significant, powerful. Because if I just walk down the street and say, hey, you know, you, you should notice your thoughts and they rise and they pass. I mean, that's not going to get much traction around Redwood City. But if you kind of build it up for a while with all these miracle stories and then say, boom, that's kind of, wow, this guy's serious. This is really, so it's like in Zen, they say, you know, the miracle is, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, carrying, uh, carrying water, chopping wood. So the ordinary, that's really special. So again, that contrast. So here what we have, what I would like to suggest, another way of reading this text, is rather than using the supernatural and, and kind of grand devotional things as a, as a championing devotionalism, supernatural, it's using that supernatural and devotional things as a backdrop to highlight the value of practice itself and the importance of the Dharma and to bring us back to that. Um, so, and, um, um, so we find uh, here also in, in 510 a similar idea. Um, Ananda asks, um, I didn't read all of this before. Lord, what shall we do with the Thagata's remains? The Buddha answered, Do not worry yourselves about the funeral arrangements, Ananda. You should strive for the highest goal. Devote yourselves to the highest goal and dwell with your minds tirelessly, zealously devoted to the highest goal. There are wise kathiyas, warriors, Brahmins and householders who are devoted to the Thagata, they will take care of the funeral. But then the, the, the next passage I read, because in the, Ananda wasn't satisfied with that. So then he asked again, but Lord, what are we to do with Thagata's remains? He's not a very good student. <laughs> no wonder he didn't get enlightened before then, because Ananda wasn't fully enlightened. That's the whole part, backdrop of this too. And so um, then I read the rest piece, you know, then he talks about treating him like a, a world monarch. But the first thing the Buddha says is, um, don't, don't concern yourself with this funeral stuff and what happens to the body afterwards. Just leave that to other people to take care of. Uh, you're, you're, you're committed to being, practicing the way, being on the path. Just follow the path all the way. And this is also, I think, a strong time to say this. Again, the juxtaposition here is between the devotional aspects and the practice. And here, the Buddha first says, Stay with the practice. Some people have suggested this, that this uh, is a teaching that monks and nuns don't engage in ceremonies like this. That's not their domain. Their domain is practice. And so some people take that quite seriously and have quite a split between that. Um, 
So, um, on 2.25, just before the passage about him being old, that I just read, um, or I say 2.24, so he's done his range retreat. And he, during his range retreat, um, he was attacked by severe sickness with sharp pains as if he were about to die. Then, having recovered from his sickness, as soon as he felt better, the Buddha went outside and sat on a prepared seat in front of his dwelling. Then the Venerable Ananda came to him, saluted him, and sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have seen the Lord in comfort, and I have seen the Lord's patient enduring. And Lord, my body was like a drunkard's. I lost my bearings, and things were unclear to me because of the Lord's sickness. The only thing that was some, of some comfort to me was the thought, the Lord will not attain final Nibbana until he has made some statement about the order of monks. So that's a reasonable assumption, you know, that the last instructions, there has to be some last instruction. He's not going to just go out. And so, you know, that's, so they felt a little bit reassured. But it's quite something for Ananda, he's, you know, been with the Buddha for 20 years and heard all the teachings and all that, that even he's, you know, he's not really, he, doesn't, he hasn't really penetrated the Dharma. And, um, and there's one thing to know the Dharma, it's another thing to penetrate it. And so Ananda knows it for sure, but he hasn't penetrated it. And, um, and so his, my body was like a drunkard's. So he says, the Lord will not attain the final Nibbana until he has made some statement about the order of monks, about the order of monks. What's supposed to happen to them once the Buddha dies? Some, some instructions, some what are the succession plans. And the Buddha says, but Ananda, what does the order of monks expect of me? I have taught the, dharm, the Dhamma, Ananda, making no inner or outer, no esoteric or exoteric, nothing, nothing hidden and nothing public. The Thagata has no teacher's fist in respect to the doctrines. Teacher's fists means you, you say some things to people, but you keep some things hidden, you know, private, secret. Only you're going to tell that to your most dearest disciples. For those of you who want to pay me the most, I'll tell you what's in here. <laughs> so he has no a teacher's fist. If there is anyone who thinks I shall take charge of the order, or the order should refer to me, let him make some statement about the order but the Tathagata does not think in such terms. So why should the Tathagata make a statement about the order? So he's saying he's not going to make a statement. He's not going to make a successor. He's not going to support someone take over the order after him. That he doesn't think that way. He almost doesn't think of himself as the leader. And so if, if he's not appointing someone, if it's not going to be someone who arbitrates what is, what is the Dharma, how are... You know, how are people going to do it after he dies? How are they going to know what the Dharma is with the, if uh, dis- disputes arise? Um, so then he goes on and says how sick he is, he's dying. And then he goes on and says, kind of a follow-up, so why should the Thagata make a statement about the order? Therefore, Ananda, you should live as islands unto yourselves, being your own refuge, with no one else as your refuge, with the Dhamma as an island, with the Dhamma as your refuge, with no other refuge. And how does a monk live as an island unto himself, with no other refuge? So this is a very important statement. And it's often quoted, it's often referred to, it's a very significant one that you should know about. It appears here in this text. And, um, and some people will say that 
In Theravadan Buddhism, there are four refuges. Just like in, in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, sometimes there's three, four refuges. There's the Buddha, Dharma, and the Sangha. And, uh, and then there's a fourth refuge. Refuge meaning the primary values, orientation, commitment, place of safety, support that a Buddhist will have. And so in Tibetan Buddhism, sometimes it's the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and your guru. In Theravadan Buddhism, from this statement here, it's the Buddha, Dhar- Dharma, and Sangha, and then yourself. And that's quite something. And it's a little bit confusing to some people who misunderstand the teachings of not-self. What? Now me? I'm not here. So take refuge in what's not here? Um, um, so and how does a monk live as an island unto himself with no other refuge? Here, Ananda, a monk abides contemplating the body as body, earnestly, clearly aware, mindful, having put away all hankerings and frettings for the world. And likewise, with regard to feelings, mind, and mind objects. That, Ananda, is how a monk lives an island unto himself. So he's dying. He asks, what's the plans for the the order? He says, I'm not going to make any succession plans or appoint anyone. Let people do what they want to do, but I'm not going to get involved in this. But what you should do is is, uh, be an island unto yourself. Um, Rely on yourself. Rely on your own practice. Uh, uh, an island is a place of safety in the middle of the floods the flood of life that's destroying villages and people you find an island where you're safe so here uh, you you, you yourself should be an island so there's a kind of very strong individualistic streak in the early tradition where individualistic in the sense that uh, there's a pointing to rely on yourself for the dharma uh, no one else can do it for you. And so, um, and the way you do that here is you do the four foundations of mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness. So this is again, uh, exists in this text in contrast to the devotional things that appear. And so how do we hold these two together? And um, certainly they can be integrated. And I think for many Buddhists, they were integrated. They didn't, those two weren't opposed to each other. The people who are completely committed to the path also could live, have a very devotional uh, side where they went to stupas and bowed and offered flowers. But uh, it's still interesting to look at that contrast as it appears in the text. And it seems that the Buddha is playing that contrast because for the monks he's saying, you know, you guys practice. That's what you should do. He doesn't say, and by the way, you should go down to the local stupa once in a while to them. Um, and then I read to you already the section of Subhadda when he heard that the Buddha had died, said, great. This is a good thing, because now we're not going to be troubled by that guy anymore, telling us what to do and not to do. And we could do whatever we want. So this is, uh, raises concern about, you know, that people are going to kind of create their own dharma, create their own belief system, and, and have the dharma, or have their practice, or have monastic life be self-serving rather than liberating. And so how to, how to, how to protect the dharma, how to protect this powerful path of liberation, from being just another vehicle, self-serving, um, you know, way of being comfortable or believing what you believe, or, or you know, how, do, how is it really challenging and get uproot what needs to be uprooted? So there has to be an understanding of what it is. What is the Dharma? So in 349, the Buddha 
has declared himself, that said that he's going to die. Uh, just before that. So he's, he's told Ananda he's going to die. There's a whole piece story there. Skip that for now. He's t- he announced he's going to die. And then he tells Ananda to bring the monks together, gather them together. And so they did. And they meet in the assembly hall. And uh, the Buddha enters the assembly hall and sat down and prepared a seat. And then he said to the monks, Monks, for this reason, those matters which I have discovered and proclaimed should be thoroughly learned by you, practiced, developed, and cultivated, so that this holy life may endure for a long time, that it may be for the benefit and happiness of the multitude, out of compassion for the world, for the benefit and happiness of devas and humans. So I take this as significant. He's now announced to his community, he's dying. That's a significant time in anybody's, any teacher's life. And he gathers them together, and they just heard this news. He has their attention. And what is the most important thing he wants to teach? And he's going to teach something about what allows the continuity of the Dharma. Um, So this holy life, the practice of the path, may endure for a long time. And why should it endure for a long time? So that it can be a benefit to other people, out of compassion for others. Um, And so he's going to talk about, he's going to talk about what he discovered. What was it I discovered? Um... These are things you should learn, what I discovered. So this is a very interesting state. He's about to die. This is a really important time. He's going to be, in some sense, in a very succinct way, said, this is what I discovered. And so he says, what I discovered are these. The four foundations of mindfulness, the four right efforts, the four roads to power, the five spiritual faculties, the five mental powers, and the seven factors of awakening, the noble eightfold path. These are known in shorthand as the 37 wings of awakening. So what stands out for you when you hear that when the Buddha, Buddha has a chance here, end of his life, succinct way to his monks, he's going to tell them maybe what's most important, and he, this is what he says he discovered to them. This is what he wants them to learn and cultivate. What stands out about this to you, this list? If Laurie can get the, or someone, the mic ready for someone, I can just, I can just pass it to someone. Just that it's all practice. It's, a, it's all, okay. What else do you notice about that list? Give it to Diane and see what she says. <laughs> I was thinking that it's nothing new. We've, we've heard all these th- well, we don't always talk about the five faculties as the five roads to power and yeah. stuff like that, but, but we know these things, so that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait for the mic. Dawn's going to speak, and then, yeah. I was just going to say that it's nothing personal to a guru or even to one individual, so it's a process by which anyone in any culture in any era could come. Uh-huh. So it's involved with process that's universal in some way. Right. Uh-huh. Great. So far. 
Did it have the, the four Brahma Viharas in it? No. no. That was something that jumped out at me. I also noticed you didn't say anything about Vinaya, which, you know, the code of conduct for monks, which right. you might have expected him to since he was talking to monks. He touches into it later when Ananda asks a question, but, but yeah, I mean, the Vinaya is, you know, a way of organizing communal life and um, as much as it is about the path. But, the, you know, this is, these are universal. The Vinaya is not universal because it only applies to monks and nuns. And so this is universal. So anything else stands out? Yeah, please. He, men- he mentions these um, different factors, and he mentions the Noble Eightfold Path, but he doesn't actually say the Four, four Noble Truths themselves. Uh-huh. So the Four Noble Truths don't, are not listed there. So that seems a little odd, right? Since the Four Noble Truths are sometimes seen as being the heart of Buddhism and it's not pointing to. So can you suggest maybe why? It just seems that that the practice that he's describing... um, creates the, the reality of the Four Noble Truths. It creates the separation from suffering and the, the perception of it, the separation or cessation yeah. of it, and the, um, the way of doing it. It's all outlined in those 37, uh-huh. it seems. So the difference is that this, this, describes the, this describes the process, the practice and the qualities of mind that come into play that allows you to have that insight. Uh, but the insight is a, is a result of the practice. It's not the cause of the practice. So what he's focusing on here is practice. Okay. Is Rick in the back? It feels a little bit like he's trying to separate himself and saying, here's the practice, you know, don't make it me, here's this, and kind of removing what he learned and setting it out here on the table. Could be, yes. And that's, that's really what it is. You know, you can look at me and be inspired because I did this. But if that's all that you do, this over here on the table is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's really not me. It's you, you know, eating, feasting at the table, what, yeah. what I've been talking about. And he's kind of renaming the important factors that will, that will get someone there and kind of, I feel like he's removing it away from himself. Could be, yes. So he's pointing back, again, another instance where he's pointing back to practice, to people's own practice and the qualities that they need to have. And uh, so here, you know, at this very important junction, seemingly important, you know, when he's announced he's going to die and he's going to say his last words, last teachings, this is what he points to. And one of the, one of the things that stands out to me is that none of these are a belief. And so he's not saying I discovered a particular tenant that you have to not believe or this is what's... This, not saying this is what's true in terms of some belief system, uh, but rather, again, he's pointing to practices. Now, the backdrop of these practices, of course, is a kind of a belief, and that is the belief that uh, liberation or enlightenment is worthwhile. Possible. <laughs> and possible. Then he go, but then he goes on to say, and the next one, the next thing he does say is kind of like a teaching. Um, then the Lord said to the monks, And now, monks, I declare to you, 
All conditioned things are of a nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. Thagata's final passage will not be long delayed. Three months from now, the Thagata will take his final Nibbana. So this idea that all conditioned things are impermanent. Uh, they, the impermanence of things reappears repeatedly in this text. And just the whole text itself has to do with the impermanence of life, with the Buddha passing away. And, um, and, the, and the, what follows, if you understand that all conditioned things are impermanent, what follows for the Buddha is practicing. Strive entirely. Really devote yourself to practice. Um, And I think that 6.5 is a very interesting little piece. Yes? Did you have a thought about why the Four Noble Truths weren't named? Why, why the Four Noble Truths weren't named? There's a few different thoughts or theories I have. One is that, again, the those uh, Four Noble Truths are insights or views. Are, uh, and generally, when it's called... What, what most people don't think realize is that when the word noble appears... The word noble um, translates the word arya, arya satcha. And the, and the Pali grammar allows for that to be translated different ways into English or be understood different ways. And it's, allow, it's allowable to understand it the way we usually translate into English, the noble truths. But the, uh, there's another way, the grammar allows another, the way it's structured, the word. There's, you can also word it a different way, and which I'll tell you in a moment. But before I tell you, the, the, the Theravada tradition recognizes that there's different ways of understanding the grammar. And the way I'm going to tell you is the way that's preferred by the tradition, even though we don't translate it this way. So instead of calling it the noble truths, um, it's the, uh, the truths of the noble ones. And the noble ones are those who have attained some degree of awakening. And so this is not, these are not, the Four Noble Truths are not tenets to believe. And you don't find very often in the suttas that, that the Four Noble Truths are taught as something that a new person comes to Buddhism, comes to the Buddha teaching, and this is what you need to learn. But rather they're more often pointed, referred to as the insights, the realizations that someone who's enlightened has. And so, you know, that, that's, that's where they're going with the practice, is to the Four Noble Truths. But it's not meant to be a belief or you know something you study in a textbook. It's it's the insight that an enlightened person has. That makes sense. That's one theory. Um, so you with me still? Yes. Okay. So then I like this one to look at. Um, What was it I was going to do here? Um, what did I say? Oh, six five. Yes, I like this one, six five. And uh, it's very simple. So the Buddha is dying, and he has some last little words that he says. Um, and then he says this. Then the Lord addressed the monk, saying, "It may be, monks, that some monk." has doubts or uncertainty about the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, or about the path or the 
practice. Ask monks. Do not afterwards feel remorse, thinking the teacher was there before us and we failed to ask the the Lord face to face. At these words, the monks were silent. The Lord repeated his words a second and a third time, and still the monks were silent. Then the Lord said, Perhaps, monks, you do not ask out of respect for the teacher. Then, monks, let one friend tell it to another. But still, they were silent. One of the last things that Buddha does before he dies is to ask for questions. Do you have any questions? And he really tries to pull them out. He asks three times, and they all don't have questions. And then he says, well, ask a friend to say it for you. You know, if you can't say it, write it on a piece of paper anonymously. Send send me a letter, anything. (laughs) Give me a question. And and I love this, that... uh, this invitation, you know, I kind of read into it a lot, probably, I don't know, probably more than was meant, but that's part of the value of reading a text like this, is reading things into it. It's okay to read into a text and be inspired. And so I'm inspired by this, what I read into it, which is, um, and maybe it has some truth to it, that the idea of, that the Buddha really is open to questions, open to inquiry, open to being challenged, open to um, n- not kind of putting it down. This is what, you know, in the last breath, she's not going to say, this is the truth, memorize it. Rather, please, ask, ask, ask. And, um, and in fact, you see, if you read the, the many of the suttas, that that seems to be a characteristic of the Buddha, that he was often, um, not necessarily asking for questions, but uh, very open and receptive to receiving questions. I've known people who, in, in the religion they were bro- brought up with, they ran into big trouble when they started asking questions. And some people actually had to leave their religion because they were kind of dismissed. You know, that you, you don't come to Sunday school anymore. You know, you're, you're causing too much trouble here. So this idea of you know, willing to ask questions, you know, kind of, kind of points again to some quality of what the Dharma is. Um, so I think... Um, Oh, then there's one more I want to do here before kind of having some discussion. On 2.9. So the idea is, you know, emphasizing here is be an island unto yourself, practice yourself. Here. So he goes to this village where these 12 people or so have died, followers of the Buddha. And, um, and people there ask, what kind of rebirth had they taken? What's happened to them now they died? And the Buddha goes on and tells them kind of what happened to these people. Um, um, then the Buddha basically says, um, it's kind of tiring for me. You know, if every time someone dies, I have to tell them, tell you, you know, what happened to them. It's kind of tiring. You know, it's, you know, it's kind of a waste of time. It takes, you know, a lot of people die, so it takes a long time to get through them all and, and also, maybe it's a little bit psychic work to kind of like, you know, search out the skies and figure out what happened. I don't know how easy it is, never having done it. Um, and um, therefore, Ananda, I will teach you a way of knowing Dhamma called the mirror of Dhamma, whereby the Aryan disciple, if he or she so wishes, can discern for themselves, I have destroyed hell, animal rebirth, 
the realm of ghosts, all downfall, evil fates, and sorry states. I am a stream winder, incapable of falling into states of woe, certain of attaining Nibbana. So there's a couple of interesting things here. So there are four levels of awakening, of spiritual maturity in, in this early Buddhist tradition. So rather than kind of, you know, you know, all or nothing kind of pop, you know, the spiritual explosion, there you are. There are four levels. The first level is called stream entry. And there's still much more work to be done for a person to mature more fully. But the first level is stream entry. And the advantage of stream entry, according to this early tradition, um, you don't, uh, is that you, uh, if you're a stream enter, you will no longer fall, get reborn in unfortunate states of birth. Like you won't get reborn in hell, you won't get reborn as a hungry ghost or as an animal, things that are kind of unfortunate. And so in a certain kind of way, you're saved. And there's a, plenty of focus in, in Buddhism sometimes, of, let's get people saved at least to the point where they're not going to go to hell. It's a little similar to other religions. But, uh, and so stream entry does that. So one of the reasons why people naturally, I think, will ask about loved ones who have died, people want to be reassured that the loved one they died, you know, are not going to some terrible state. And so the Buddha reassures them in listing these people, saying, in fact, they're stream enters, and so they're basically safe from that kind of rebirth. But now the Buddha is going to say, this is how you know for yourself if you're a stream enter, if you've reached the first stage of, of awakening. Um, and what is this mirror of the Dhamma by which one can know this, that one is a stream enter? So one can know for oneself. Hirananda, this Aryan disciple, is possessed of unwavering confidence in the Buddha thus. This blessed Lord is an arhat, fully enlightened Buddha, endowed with wisdom and conduct, the welfare, knower of the worlds, incomparable trainer of men to be tamed, teacher of gods and humans, enlightened and blessed. He is possessed of, the disciple is possessed of unwavering faith in the Dhamma, thus, well proclaimed by the Lord is a Dhamma, visible here and now, timeless, inviting inspection, leading onward, to be comprehended by the wise, each one for himself or herself. He is possessed of unwavering confidence in the Sangha, thus, well directed as a Sangha of the Lord's disciples, of upright conduct, on the right path, on the perfect path, that is to say, the four pairs of persons, the eight kinds of humans. The Sangha of the Lord's disciples is worthy of offerings, worthy of hospitality, worthy of gifts, worthy of veneration, an unsurpassed field of merit in this world. And he or she is possessed of morality, dear to the noble ones, unbroken, without defect, unspotted, without inconsistency, liberating, uncorrupted, and conducive to concentration. So the idea here is that the Buddha implies that you can look at yourself and decide for yourself that you have attained a certain degree of spiritual maturity. So a little bit goes against uh, later in Buddhism where there's usually kind of, a, kind of a, sometimes a shyness or the tradition has a kind of emphasizes a kind of reluctance of uh, self-validating um, um, one's own level of practice. I think there's a lot of wisdom in being shy about it, but there tends to be a, a shyness of it, um, a reluctance to do that. But here, the, uh, in, uh, through these criteria, the Buddha says, yes, this is something you can know for yourself and be confident in yourself. And a lot of it has to do with confidence. Confidence rather than a liberating moment of meditation. It's great, you know, some big thing happening in your meditation, but rather some kind of confidence. 
And so what unwavering confidence? And how does that unwavering confidence occur that uh, really kind of changes the course of the mind stream of a person, the mind stream being the habits of thought, the direction in which they orient themselves, what they do with their body, speech, and mind? And how does that confidence grow, that that kind of transformation in a person is an interesting question. So if, but if a person feels that confidence, his real confidence in the Buddha, uh, I, uh, that the Buddha represents the possibility of real liberation. That the Dharma is something that's available, clearly available here. And there's a Sangha here, refers to those people who have experienced liberation, who have reached one of the four stages of awakening. And then the fourth criteria, the person really can look at themselves and recognize uh, that they're ethical, that they live in an ethical way. They possess the morality dear to the noble ones, unbroken, without defect, unspotted, without inconsistency, liberating, uncorrupted, conducive to liberation. One of the things that's very interesting about this list about morality, it gives a little bit uh, the function of morality as well. Part of the function of morality is that when you live, when you have moral integrity, that's supportive of concentration. Uh, it's also the supportive. Of, it's liberating. It supports liberation. There's without inconsistency. I don't know what that means, but maybe it means that uh, that there's certain kind of integrity in a person. Yes. Can you explain that with the four? Yeah, so kinds? the four kinds of people are the stream enters, uh-huh. the once returners, the non returners, and the arhats. And the eight? And the eight are, those four categories are divided into two kinds of people those who've um, um, attained the fruit and those who attain the path. It's two stages in that experience. And the later Theravada tradition, it's not really explained here. But the later term for our tradition basically, basically holds that those two happen almost simultaneously, but it's a little bit different. So in order to be really exact, there's a few moments where someone has attained the path, but not the fruit. And then a few moments later, you experience the fruit uh, of that, that process of liberation. So that's why there's eight people, because of those few moments in between. I was going to say, <laughs> how can you have one without the other? We have to wait a little bit. And if you're impatient, then it's a long wait, but... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So that's, um, so what do you think of this as the Dhamma? What are your comments about our questions? Do you see a pattern in all these kind of pointing towards the Dhamma, towards the Dharma, how do you define it? What, do you, what is that pattern? What is that, what's the commonality in all that? Yes. Do it yourself. So one commonality, do it, do it yourself. What else do you see? Humility on the part of the Buddha. Okay. And can you say a little more? What way was it? Humility. That he was saying, I don't have any further great insights to give you, I've already given them to you, and you can do it, do it yourself. Yeah. And it's not about him in a certain it's way, not it's about, about you doing it. And, 
Yeah. Don't don't honor me. Honor yeah. me by honor. Well, honor me by practicing. Do it your yeah. way. Yeah. Don't focus on me so much. Yeah. And um, the reference to ethics, even though he hadn't didn't specifically give the monk's code of conduct at the end, but what you were talking about there about the stream enters and so on. Great. Thank you. Someone else. What, what, what are, what is, what's, what's a common thread that runs through all these kinds of pointing to the Dharma that we've looked at, we've looked at this afternoon so far? John? I don't know, where's the other mics? There's one, where's the other one? Okay. If you keep it near you, you'll have to say something soon. Well, one thing that strikes me, it, it seems so complicated. So complicated. There's so many efforts and oh, so faculties many and powers of mind and there are the twos and the fours and there's all these analysis of all the different stages you could be when you die. Um, and uh, ultimately, I guess, uh, what draws me to the practice is the simplicity of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so for you, it seems very complicated. This, the, what's in common is what, 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 the commonality of all these different things being discussed. It just seems like so much. I mean, yeah, and, uh, I think I can say this very quickly. Um, but I was traveling in China, actually, and um, met um, um, some Taiwanese. Um, and I was saying how I really love the, the Buddhist path because the Christian thing had so much going on there. And... Uh, the Buddhist path, you know, you sit and you pay attention to your breath and what is. And the, the Taiwanese person said, oh, that's why I believe in Jesus. <laughs> because, oh my God, the, all the ghosts and deities and the rules and stuff, it's just, you know, you're saved by grace, by faith alone. Beautiful. Uh, so at any rate, uh, <laughs> there is simplicity underneath all this stuff. <laughs> Perhaps. Yes, what's behind you, Mike? I was reflecting not so much on what he was saying, but he was surrounded by a committed monastic community at the end that all of those 500 or however many it truly was were already stream enters. So lots of other people came to revere him during this process, but the folks he spent the time with were the ones who were farthest along in being able to understand what it was he had to teach. Yes. Um, I don't know if furthest along. I mean, there was a mixed bag among the monks who were there. So, you see, maybe we'll see after this next little break that um, some of the monks um, were pretty equanimous about the Buddha dying and some of them uh, were pretty upset. And the implication is those who were upset had no, had no enlightenment. Yes, please. I was just thinking how compassionate he was being, that um, he was acknowledging that people were in different places. And I guess, I mean, one um, definition of a teacher is, you know, they create that sacred space where you reflect back to you your true nature. And so people who had been around a teacher or around the Buddha got used to that, 
you know, having that reflection and that was going to be taken away. And um, even though he had taught them to go inside, you know, um, I think he was really saying, come on now, you have it all inside of you. Yeah. Don't get lost when I disappear. Then, yeah. It's, you have it all. And I, I think that's so compassionate. I mean, he, he makes mm -hmm. it so clear. Great, beautiful. And it kind of reminds me of the story that's told that Ananda, who was with by his side supposedly for 20 years as his attendant, the one who memorized many of the suttas, had not experienced uh, enlightenment by the time the Buddha died. And how could that be? How could someone, you know, have so much contact with the Buddha and not get it? <laughs> and, um, you know, many theories, but one theory is that it's so easy when you're in the presence of someone like the Buddha, perhaps, of just kind of uh, being enthralled by it or devoted to him or, or, you know, sidetracked from your own practice, just being in the presence of someone like that. And it was only after the Buddha died that the Nanda got on with it. Aaron. Yeah, so I feel like the, um, the, the theme, we just talked about uh, faith in the triple gem. Um, and then before that, we summarized the most important teachings, right? And I feel like, I feel the same way about this as I feel about the Eightfold Path. It's, they're basically different ways of saying live with integrity, cultivate integrity. And actually all the, you know, the, the powers and um, faculties um, Etc. that were listed before, they're all just ways of cultivating integrity in your own life, and they've already been presented, so it's beautiful. And then, uh, you know, it's interesting, the thing that's standing out is not being said here, and I'm seeing it in the sutta, is to have integrity, it helps not to cling. And I see a lot of clinging in the suttas, especially from the disciples, where I'm getting that feeling, the way it's rendered, um, so I, I, those are the, the themes that are standing out for me integrity yeah. and uh, try not to cling great thank you yes Judy I mean um, Lori um, what I'm getting out of that the theme is not only cultivation but it's the diligent practice that he's kind of under underlining is you need to do this practice yourself and be very um, uh, earnest in practicing because he's, he's laying it back on, on his whole community of monks to practice. Yes. Good. So here in the back. It's essentially uh, saying the same thing, but I'm relating to the fact that this discussion was sort of um, foreshadowed by his not naming a successor, his not identifying the authority for this Dharma going forward. And then, in detail, laying out the authority for the Dharma going forward in the practice. For the practice and the Dharma being the authority rather than a person. And more specifically the experience that the authority of this is not 
anywhere else but in your experience or realization of the way. It's not to be found, you know, except in your own investigation, so your own found, realization. It, so it isn't found in a body of teachings like in a book? In a book or a personality, again, you know, this question of devotion that is obviously so um, um, uh, charged is a question of where is the authority in your life? Where is it? Is it in your? Is it in your psychology? Is it in uh, you know um, a beloved individual or a deity? Or is there something realized through the practice in which there is devotion? Great, great. Thank you all. That was great. And um, so the last piece for this section I want to end with is um, there's a, something called the Maha uh, Nidesa. And this is called the, the four great criteria, four great authorities f- for ascertaining what is the Dharma. And, um, and this, is, this is, oh, I didn't, this is where, um, I, didn't, I didn't write down where it is. Um, and this is uh, after the Buddha died, if someone comes along and says, this is what the Dharma is. I heard this from the Buddha and this is what he taught. Then you don't just accept it because someone says that this is what the Buddha said, this is what the Dharma is. But you have criteria, reference points, in order to ascertain whether this is, this is uh, uh, you know, uh, the Dharma. And uh, but let me see if I can find it. Here it is. So 4.8. Suppose a monk were to say, Friends, I heard and received from the Lord's own lips, this is the Dhamma, this is the discipline, this is the Master's teaching. Then, monks, you should neither approve nor disapprove his words. Then, without approving or disapproving his words, and expre- his words and expressions should be carefully noted and compared with the suttas and reviewed in light of the discipline. If they in such comparison review are found not to conform to the suttas or the discipline, the conclusion must be, assuredly this is not the word of the Buddha. It has been wrongly understood by this monk, and the matter is to be rejected. But where on such comparison review they are found to conform to the suttas or to discipline, the conclusion must be, assuredly this is the word of the Buddha. It has been rightly understood by this monk. This is the first criteria. So it says the same thing over again, but the first one was someone claims, I heard it directly from the, the Buddha. The second one is, uh, I heard it from a, a distinguished teachers or elders in the tradition. The th- third one is, um, I've heard it from many elders who are learned. Uh, and the fourth one is, um, you heard it from one elder. One person someplace said this. So then you compare it to the suttas and the minya. So this process of comparison and, uh, but this, uh, does, this does a very interesting thing. It says here that if it conforms, then accept it as the word of the Buddha. This opens the door, big time, for bringing in a lot of other things to be the words of the Buddha, which might not have been his literal words. Because one of you could go around and say, um, you know, uh, the Dharma really is... Um, 
having a mind that's like Teflon. Realization is like having a Teflon mind. Nothing sticks, you don't grab onto it. An unliberated mind is like Velcro. So, you know, is this the Dharma? Well, let's go back and look at the suttas. Well, the Buddha never talked about Teflon and Velcro, but you know, this really is in line with what he talked about. You just use different language, clinging and release from clinging, a mind which is open and free. Uh, you know, this really works, it's in harmony. So this works for the Dharma, so therefore this, therefore this must be the words of the, of the Buddha. Thus have I heard, once in Redwood City, the Buddha said, have a mind like Teflon. Straighten out those Velcro hairs. And um, so what it did was, it, th- this statement here uh, opened the door so that the tradition c- could if import, bring in a lot of things, claim it was the word of the Buddha and not actually be literally his words. Like the tradition never says this is actually the case, but it can be read this way. And that explains why perhaps there are so many sutta, sutras that have been composed and attributed to the Buddha. It isn't that someone was actually trying to fabricate something, but rather there was a kind of understanding that it's as if the Buddha said, we can say it's the word of the Buddha. And, uh, and you know, it's pretty clear that a good number of the Pali suttas that probably uh, were composed after the time of the Buddha. And, and people say, well, how can that be? How could they fabricate things and put things in his mouth? I think the ancient world didn't have the same idea of attribution and copyright as we do. And, uh, and, and also, this, some people say that monks didn't want to think that they were so special or highlight themselves as a composer of it. So the way of being more humble is to say, this is what the Buddha said, and take, them out of the, take themselves out of the picture. So you have a lot of texts, and thus have I heard. And not all of them come from the Buddha. Yes? I have a question in that citation. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, were there actually recognized suttas? <laughs> That's a good question. And um, so we don't know whether this was actually, uh, the Buddha actually taught this, or if this is another example of an interpolation from later. Because mm-hmm. later, after he died, I'm sure the, uh, the monks and nuns were struggling with this issue, and they needed some kind of criteria. So someone came up with this criteria, it was good enough for someone that the, someone slipped it in. And this gives it a greater authority because it's in here. Um, and it's a good question because a lot of, I mean, the, the expression suttas does appear in the suttas, but um, it's kind of not that common. And there's other, other words that are used for, this, for, these, word, for this, these, these texts. And the titles of suttas that they're in, like the Satipatthana Sutta, uh, it, uh, I think the earliest reference we have that of a lot of these texts being titled that way is from like a thousand years after the Buddha. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they could have been earlier, but, um, but it's a fair question, so it, it's a suggestive of this later interpolation. Okay, let's take a break so we have a little enough time for the Buddha to die. <laughs> and um, so should we, can we do it in about 10 minutes? And if you have questions, I'll be up here and you can come up and